0: Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 12. After that, I kind of want to just keep singing, but we'll open the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 27 and go through chapter 13, verse 3. For about the first half of our time, and then we're going to go to another place in the Old Testament. The title of tonight's message continues the theme of God's faithfulness all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. Tonight, we're looking at the fact that God previews The final celebration and we'll look at some point later in a few minutes at the final celebration we're going to look at the preview for now we want to focus on the fact that this section beginning in chapter 12 verse 27 is the high point and the pinnacle of Ezra Nehemiah this is the top we've waited 22 chapters and 24 sermons for this moment The wall of Jerusalem has been completed all the way back in chapter 6, verse 15, but if the wall is dedicated before now, it would have been premature, it would have been the wrong time. Why is that? Well, right after the wall was complete, the city of Jerusalem was still essentially empty. Chapter 11, verse 1 says that the officials lived there, but the city wasn't an operational living city. It wasn't uh, the, the place where God's people were centrally located. And as we've seen over the last few chapters, the people of God needed to undergo a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual renewal and repentance so that, as we've said, a holy people could occupy the holy city. In our text tonight, we're going to see official gatherings of religious officials, Levites and priests and singers and gatekeepers. They're all associated with the occupation of Jerusalem, and I think what I want to get across right up front is this makes a very firm connection between the city of god and the god of the city this is a a clear theological connection the city represents much more than just a nice place for jews to live this is the capital city of the bible this is the capital city of god's redemptive program it's the capital city of all of prophecy and i want to camp on that just for a moment because the city of jerusalem is so important in scripture As God's redemptive blueprint unfolds throughout the pages of scripture, Jerusalem becomes the image. Jerusalem becomes the symbol of Israel's imperial hopes that God would establish his kingdom on earth someday. It's very likely that Jerusalem is located either at or near the site of the ancient Canaanite city of Salem. That was the city of the priestly king Melchizedek. The area was called Jebus before King David conquered it, as recorded in 2 Samuel 5. David took it away from the Jebusites. We don't have a problem with that. It had already been deeded to Israel by God many hundreds of years earlier. The Jebusites were squatters. David established Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel, it's the center of the Israelite monarchy. And one of David's earliest acts as king was to bring the Ark of the Covenant to reside in Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem wasn't just the center of the the Israelite monarchy, it's the the center of Israel's worship. This was much more firmly established when David's son Solomon built the temple, the permanent temple, in essence a, a royal palace for God and the place of sacrifice where God would be approached on the basis only of shed blood. Jerusalem reached its highest point in Old Testament times during the reigns of David and Solomon. Jerusalem was so much a part of the people of Israel that it came to be symbolic of the nation itself. Sometimes Israel is simply called Jerusalem or the mountain of the Lord. How important is the mountain of the Lord? In prophecy, the mountains upon which Jerusalem currently sit are prophesied to become the highest of all the mountains. Micah 4 verse 1 meaning that topographical changes are going to happen during the Great Tribulation. And when, when the kingdom of Christ comes to this earth, the literal highest place on earth will be Jerusalem, as is appropriate. The very worst thing God could do in the minds of an Israelite was to withdraw his presence from Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he did as a result of Israel's continued generational apostasy In 586 B.C., the Babylonians, under God's sovereign hand, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the surviving inhabitants captive. But the hope that Israel had in restoration always, always centered around a return to Jerusalem. There's no place in Scripture where a whole bunch of Jews got together and said, you know, Madagascar looks really good. Let's make that our new home. That never happened. It's always Jerusalem. And so, after the exile, when in great humility and in small numbers, Israel began returning to rebuild the temple and the city and the walls, this was the top priority. The temple in the city, the walls of the city, representing the protection, protected nature of the city. To a Jew, and rightly so, there is no Israel without a Jerusalem. No kingdom without a capital. It was in Jerusalem that Israel awaited the Davidic king, a Messiah, to come and establish them forever. And consequently, when Messiah did come, when the glory of God returned to Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ, the beginnings of that coming kingdom were seen. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do you mean by that? The king is here. The king is here. Messiah didn't minister in Rome or in Athens or in Babylon or in Damascus. He went to Jerusalem. He even offered himself to Jerusalem as the king of Israel. He fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fault of a pack animal. In Jerusalem, on two occasions, Jesus cleansed the temple of the fraudulently religious. He defended His Father's house, the divine palace of God on earth. But ultimately, Jerusalem would reject Messiah in the worst possible way. She would be party to His death. Jesus wept over Jerusalem's sin and rejection and consequently predicted that God would once again destroy the city this is exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when the legions of Titus came from Rome. Jerusalem then became the site of the death and the resurrection of Messiah. And because, of this, because of this rejection by the Israelite leaders, Jesus told the 12 apostles that he was going to replace the apostate leadership of Israel with them. Matthew 19.28, Jesus said to them, to the apostles, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. As Jesus predicted, Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70, but her significance doesn't end there. Present day Jerusalem is not the seat of God's kingdom except for those who have received Christ as Savior, the the Jews in Jerusalem and the Israel of today still reject Jesus as Messiah. Their eyes are still blinded to spiritual truth. And of course, there's a huge Muslim presence there now as well. So, this is not present day Jerusalem is not acting as the capital city of God's kingdom. And so, in the New Testament, the focus now becomes the future of Jerusalem, the future kingdom partly fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, but the, the New Testament focus goes even beyond that. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the one to come. This lasting city, this eternal city that Paul calls in Galatians four twenty six, the Jerusalem above is a city awaiting inhabitants. Awaiting a time when it will be inhabited. And in fact, your salvation is so certain... That Hebrews twelve twenty two says that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. That in other words, it's as if you're already there. It's as if you're already in that city. And like Jerusalem above, like the new coming, the coming new Jerusalem, which is in awaiting inhabitants. In the same way, the re-walled and now secure city of Jerusalem in the days of these returned exiles is to be re-inhabited. And we come now to this high point of Ezra and Nehemiah, the celebration and worship of the reopening of Jerusalem. In fact, our text this, this evening is very instructive. It actually outlines what celebratory worship ought to look like. It gives us a theology of worship. And so to be as practical as I can, I'd like to use our text this evening for us to be reminded of six ways to honor God in celebratory worship. Six ways to honor God in worship, or if I could be more blunt, how the church ought to function. How we as the church ought to function. From our text, the first way to honor God and worship we'll call spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation. Nehemiah 12, verse 27 If you follow along with me. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps and lyres. Verses 28 and 29. Note that the singers were being gathered from around Jerusalem. In fact, some had even built villages right around Jerusalem to be available for service. In verse 30, the priests and the Levites cleansed themselves. They also cleansed the people, the gates and the wall. So this preparation for worship is, is more, however, than simply gathering the musical instruments, gathering the instrumentalists and the singers. It involved spiritual preparation. And you see first that the, in verse 30, the priests and the Levites cleansed themselves. What does that mean? Well, what we have to go on is the law of God in the Old Testament from Exodus 19, from Leviticus 16, from Numbers 8. This cleansing of themselves likely involved bathing, washing their clothes, sacrificing a personal sin offering in order to restore relationship and fellowship with God and abstinence from intimacy with their wives so that they might be fully focused on the Lord. But you notice they also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. There's just a a general purification going on. How How do you purify gates and a wall? Well, if this followed the same prescription from Leviticus 14 of purifying a home, a structure, this would involve cleanup, it would involve preparation, and making everything as pristine and perfect as possible ahead of the time of worship and celebration. And I think this is an important distinction for us. I think we tend to think of worship as being helpful to purify us. And I understand that, and there's, there's an element of truth to that, to, to be a, a cleansing and a renewal of our relationship with God. But that's not wholesale the, the pattern in Scripture. The pattern in Scripture is not worship to be purified. The pattern in Scripture is be purified in order to worship. There's a big difference Now, of course, the ultimate purification happens at salvation when we are made right with God through Christ. But I don't think that should ever make us think that worshiping God is now a casual, informal affair where we're just hanging out with Jesus. Worship is never casual. The words worship and casual are as far apart as any two words can ever be. In the New Testament, the fact that God was killing Corinthian believers for worshiping with a glib and unconfessed sinful attitude that attests to this principle being universal across all the covenants the fact that jesus commanded in matthew 5 that if you're about to go worship the lord first you're to be reconciled with your brother who has something against you that's a principle that's universal across all covenants you're to be purified the fact that we're encouraged as Christians in 1 John 1.9 to confess our sins because God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a, a cross covenantal principle. Do not think of worship as casual. Why? Because the Bible never does. The Bible never thinks of worship as casual. Spiritual preparation is imperative, and the church that comes together with a sense of awe, a sense of fear, a sense of humility, having confessed sin before the Lord, that's the proper way to worship God. There's a second way to honor God in worship we'll call musical exaltation. Musical exaltation. Now, Nehemiah himself organizes a great procession. Verse 31 Then I had the leaders of Judah come up. On top of the wall, and I had two great choirs of Thanksgiving stand, the first proceeding to the right, on top of the wall toward the dung gate. And then skip to verse 38. verse 38, the second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of furnaces, to the broad wall. The starting point is the valley gate on the west side of the city, if you can picture that on, on the west. The two groups are marching on the ramparts on top of the wall. The first group turns right, going toward the dung gate to the south. The second group turns left, going to the tower of the furnaces to the north. Each group circled half of the city and then they came together again at the temple. Verse 40, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. They all had their musical instruments with them and all the many singers in in all likelihood as they're walking along the tops of the wall. The reason they're separated into two groups is that they're singing and playing their instruments as they go. Most likely in a call and response as we sung tonight. I was so glad to do Darren a call and response song so that I could use that as an illustration. That this choir and orchestra did this hymn or psalm. This choir and orchestra did this hymn or psalm. And then they, they echoed back and forth. And they did this all the way around the wall until they came together at the temple. At first they separate farther and farther from each other. And then they come closer and closer. It would have been a spectacular effect. Verse 33 indicates that Ezra was with the first group and verse 38 indicates that Nehemiah was with the second group. So you have the the main represented leadership in these two books here. And this is a tremendous victory because what this is is a callback. This is a reminder of another march around this city that was very, very different. It was a lonely march made by one man, made by Nehemiah, And it began at exactly the same point, at the valley gate on the west. This harkens all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And I'll just read it to you. This is Nehemiah. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon spring and on to the dung gate inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the spring gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for my animal to pass. In other words, the, the pathway in the wall is so broken down, you can't even get by. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I turned and entered the valley gate and turned around. This celebratory march on top of the walls is a redo of Nehemiah's original secret nighttime investigation of the broken down walls. Now they're walking on top of walls that are completed. And listen, in the ancient Near East, when you are part of a city with completed walls, you are a power to be contended with. The massive groups of singers and instrumentalists have arrived at the temple. Verse 42, the end of verse 42. And the singers made their voices heard. That's a really nice Hebrew way of saying they sang at the top of their lungs. This is epic. This is grand. A marching choir. A marching orchestra. This is worship in song with many voices, many instruments. And there's nothing in this meant to be entertaining. There's nothing in this meant to make people feel good. This is all for the Lord. It was an act toward God, for God, to the glory of God. For all the people of God to participate in, led by the choirs and the instrumentalists. I think this is so instructive for us. Some of you have pets. Some of you are familiar with animals and you know the sounds that they make. Why do we never bring animals up here to make sounds in worship? Because God created mankind alone with a voice that simply by doing the act of going, ah, creates a musical instrument. We're the only ones. We're the only ones that sing. We make song. The ultimate purpose of this physiological creation is to use your mind, which has acquired truth from God's Word, to repeat back to God those truths in song. in sing song fashion to His glory. Why do we sing we sing because that's what worshipers do. Musical celebration. There's a third way to honor God in worship. We'll call this sacrificial commemoration. Sacrificial commemoration, verse 43 And on that day they offered great sacrifices and were glad because God had given them great gladness. Even the women and children were glad, so that the gladness of Jerusalem was heard from afar. This is an important notation that we'll see a number of times on that day. The author here is very careful to make certain we know that the people didn't dare to attempt to worship God without sacrifice. And this is a a key principle for us. Sacrifice and blood and worship go together all through Scripture. They must go together. We are, as we said this morning, in a mediated relationship with God Humanity lost the privilege of direct fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. And since this is the case, we must approach God on the basis of sacrifice. Death must happen because the wages of sin is death. Now the sacrifices made here aren't specified, but it fits the pattern of worship all throughout Scripture that sacrificial death is necessary to approach a holy God because we are, by our sin natures, unholy I think if I could have a moment to convince the entire American evangelical church of one thing, it would be to ask why we have forgotten this concept. And we might say, well, we don't live in the Old Testament. Sacrifice is not necessary. Sacrifice has always been necessary for worship. Why are you able to sing a hymn? Why are you able to say a prayer? Why does God even care what you think? Why does God like the fact that you say his truths back to him? Why does he like it that you gather together with God's blessing? Why do you have your gifts and offerings received in good standing with God? All of that, all of those elements of worship were purchased. No one worships God without an admission price. No one. And that admission price was the very life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must always keep that central, sacrificial commemoration. We receive the Lord's table once a month. We have a cross on the wall behind us. We mention the cross every single service that we're here together. My prayer for you and my prayer for us as a church is that we never make worship nonchalant. We never make it unconcerned because we remember that someone died for you to have the privilege of addressing God. Someone died for you to have the privilege of singing a song for which He doesn't strike you dead. Someone died for you to have the privilege to utter a prayer that goes all the way to heaven and is considered holy. There's a fourth way to honor God and worship we'll call universal participation. Universal participation. What a sweet and precious phrase we see In verse 43, God had given them great gladness. Even the women and children were glad. They're all gathered together. There's a word here that we love. It's a word that's in our name. It's a word that we we cherish. It is the word church. It's a word made fun of by the world, but it's a word that we love. It's our translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which simply means the gathering together, the coming together of God's people. There, There is in the true and genuine people of God an innate desire to gather. We desire to assemble, to express this joy in the Lord all together. Can you imagine what would have happened to the church if live streaming capability were in the first century? That would have been devastating to the church. The church needs to gather And as they gathered together, did you see the theme in verse 43? They were glad because God had given them great gladness. Even the women and children were glad so that the gladness of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Glad, gladness, glad, gladness. That's celebratory worship. And notice, by the way here, the witness of universal participation when they're all together. The gladness of Jerusalem was heard from afar. This is finally Israel being what Israel was meant to be. A witness to the surrounding nations that there is a God to be worshipped. There is a God who will forgive you of your sins. There is a God that will bring you into right relationship with Him. They're being a beacon of hope for the nations. And how are they doing it? Are they doing it with an evangelism program? Are they doing it by handing out tracts? Nothing wrong with any of those things. They're doing it by singing praises to God. They're gathering attention to themselves by their worship. They're gathered together. And I, I would urge all of you and anyone listening to not waste your life burning bridges in the church, having some philosophical little corner you're going to fight that because the church is imperfect, I can't be a part of it. Don't waste your life having such high expectations of God's people in a sinful world that you never go all in with the church. Listen, the very best churches are filled with the same kinds of people, sinners, sinners, sinners. Don't waste your life making excuses why you can't be with God's people on a regular basis. It's sad to me when I talk to a 60 or a 70 or a 75-year-old man or woman who has spent his whole life or her whole life making excuses why I couldn't make it to church here and there. It is honoring to God to gather in universal participation. Here's a fifth way to honor God in worship. We'll call this intentional donation. Intentional donation. Verse 43, the emphasis on that moment, on that day, is clear. And we see the same emphasis in verse 44, which now begins somewhat of an appendix or kind of an addition to the main event. Verse 44, on that day, Men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was glad over the priests and Levites who stood to minister. Verses 45 through 47 outline the determination that the people had made to faithfully support and provide for the worship of God, to provide income for the singers and the gatekeepers and the Levites. And at this moment, their worship of God was such a priority that not only did they want to celebrate that day, they wanted to make sure this would continue on. They knew it was right to obey the Lord in providing for worship. I'm really not sure where we ever got the notion that worshiping God is free. It's not. It's not. First of all, to worship God costs the Lord Jesus Christ his life. And second, all through the Bible, worship costs the worshiper something, always. Whether it's an animal in sacrifice or a donation to the temple or regular support of the theocracy, the theocratic nation run by the Levites, Jesus and the apostles were financially supported by followers of Christ. The New Testament calls for the generous giving of believers to the ministry and to support the shepherds of the church. This has been the case always. Worship is never free. I was listening to a lecture a number of years ago. I think it was at a shepherds conference. And one man in a local church who was was an elder and he was giving his testimony of his earlier years. The local church was a... Smaller church, they were trying to do some remodeling of their facility. In particular, the bathrooms desperately needed work. Not the most exciting part of worship, but necessary nonetheless. If we had no bathrooms, you would definitely notice that. He was an influential man in the small but growing church, and as was his habit, and the habit of many in such churches, he automatically just defaulted to how can we save money? As if the goal of the church is to have a deep savings account. And so for the bathrooms, he pushed for the cheapest everything. Cheap fixtures, cheap sinks, cheap floors. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's, that's fine. But According to his own testimony, he happened to be building a custom home for himself at the same time. And it occurred to him that in an effort to please his wife and himself, he was ordering nothing but the best of the fixtures and the sinks and the floor coverings. He was convicted in his heart and he adjusted his thinking now to not only encourage giving the best to the Lord, but he also personally financed a large part of that bathroom remodel so that he would put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. I know of one church that is habitually stingy and miserly with its shepherds, even when they're capable of doing more and the church as a whole is languishing and that ministry is leaking people because the attitude of the leadership is leaking down to the attitude of the people because the leaders themselves are disobedient to the Lord in providing for the worship of God. We'll do one more, a sixth way to honor God in worship. Purposeful sanctification Purposeful sanctification. We come now to a a second appendix, so to speak, a a second add-on to this day. But notice the timing yet again. Verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they separated all foreigners from Israel. If you've been keeping track, this is now the fourth time that the people have heard the law of God read in about a month. This time, the emphasis seems to be on some specific parts of the law. Numbers 22, the first generation of Israelites were plagued by Balak, king of the Moabites, who hired a false prophet named Balaam to scare Israel. It didn't work. And if you remember in earlier in Nehemiah, in similar fashion, the wicked surrounding peoples led by Sanballat and Tobiah in Nehemiah 6, they hired a false prophet, but God intervened and saved the exiles from their plotting as well. And, and because of this earlier plotting, hundreds of years earlier, by both the Ammonites and the Moabites, God had decreed in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that for 10 generations, no Ammonite and no Moabite could participate in in the worship of God with God's people. They couldn't gather in the temple. They couldn't gather together in worship. And so with the same resolve that the people showed back in Ezra 9 and 10, the Israelites once again separated themselves from anyone of mixed descent, from the wives of foreign peoples and the children they had from them. Why is this? Why did they do this? Because to dilute the holiness and the separateness of God's people would have made this whole celebration of God restoring Israel, it would have made it a joke. It would have been a mockery if they're just going to dilute themselves into non-existence. It is so, so important that the New Testament delineates that the worship of God is not merely an event that occurs in a gathering, But the worship of God is the immediate obedience of God's people to the word of God explained by the shepherds of God. The clear emphasis here in Nehemiah 13.3, so when they heard the law, they obeyed even to their own pain and heartache. And for the second time now, they're sending away foreign wives, sending away children from those marriages, even to their own pain and heartache. Purposeful sanctification. So how do we as the church worship God's spiritual preparation, musical exaltation, sacrificial commemoration, universal participation, intentional donation, and purposeful sanctification. This is a, a glorious high point for Ezra and Nehemiah. I would have loved to have seen those choirs and orchestras marching around the wall. But if you notice, know there is a Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Ezra Nehemiah doesn't end on this high point. And the fact that it doesn't end on this high point is instructive to us, and in the fact, it's key to the whole theology of Ezra Nehemiah, because in our, our final message next week, the whole book ends on a giant theological downer, just a, a huge disappointment. Why is this? Because this glorious and sublime scene here, this cannot last. It can't keep going. It's not sustainable. Not only are the people not in the glorious days of the coming new covenant, there's something painfully missing here. There's something that's even hinted at that is a a giant missing factor, something that just is, is incomplete. Back in chapter 12, verse 44, which outlined the faithful giving of the people to support the ministry of worship, in that section there's a poignant and somewhat sad note of remembrance in verse 46 here's the sad note of remembrance for in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times there were chiefs of the singers songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God what is that saying that's a little reference to back in the good old days when there was a king what's missing What's missing is a king. That's what's not here. And that's why this is just a preview of the final celebration. I'd like to switch gears. I'd like to just show you a very small portion of the real final celebration. The one that happens when Christ returns. I'd like to spend the rest of our time in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 12, if you'll turn with me there. Because all we've seen so far is a preview Well, you're finding Isaiah 12, a little short chapter, six verses. Isaiah 11 shows the glory of all the nations in the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. The future physical reign of Jesus. Chapter 11, we see the glory of a restored Israel gathered from all parts of the globe at the return of Christ. In chapter 11... This glorious time is indicated by a specific time in chapter 11, verse 10. Then it will be in that day. Verse 11, then it will be in that day. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is the phrase foreshadowed by Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's an expected future gathering, a coming together to give Messiah praise and honor and glory and worship that's rightly due His name. And so in that day when the Gentiles will gather and the Jews will gather to give praise and honor and glory to the Savior, the the one whom Zechariah 14 says will bodily be present on earth, physically here. When we see the glorified saints of God who have returned with Christ and all the saved survivors of the great tribulation All coming together in this moment of Christ's return. What do you think we will do? Isaiah 12 tells us, and maybe to put it in terms we can understand, it seems that what we will do is say, turn in your millennial hymnals to hymn number one and hymn number two. Because what we have in Isaiah 12 are basically the first two hymns of the millennium. The first two praise songs of the millennium. Chapter 12 tells us, "...then you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not dread, for Yah, Yah Himself is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation." Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to Yahweh. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise Yahweh in song, for He has done majestic things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Do you catch it? Verse 1 In that day, verse 4, in that day. Now some feel that chapter 12 applies only to the fact that after the dark days of King Ahaz in the south as related in chapters 7 and 8, a day of salvation is coming. It'll be different, but I've pointed out multiple times now, in that day is key. This is directly related to end times events, to the coming of Christ In terms of the whole layout of the book of Isaiah, chapter 12 is the conclusion of the very first major section. And like the conclusion of the next section, which ends in chapter 27, it ends with a hymn. And in this case, we would say two hymns. And these hymns have two very distinct flavors to them. One is very personal and intimate, and the other is very corporate and and public. One is uniquely vulnerable, and the other one is very exultant. Because one is the hymn of a thankful individual... And the second is the hymn of a thankful world. Verse 1, you will say in that day. The pronoun you is singular. The individual, every one of you. You, you, you and you will say in that day. And verse 4, and you will say in that day. The pronoun you is plural. All of you will say in that day. So you have the hymn of the individual and the hymn of the world. The hymn of a thankful individual and the hymn of a thankful world And this first hymn the hymn of a thankful individual can be divided into two major themes the work of god in salvation and the characteristics of the believer because of salvation the work of god in salvation we see in verse one that god is doing everything he turned his anger away he gave comfort the only verbal action of the individual that he's doing is giving thanks what is your part in becoming a christian nothing except to say thank you that's your part. The hymn gives all credit and all glory to God and to God alone. And there's some very personal and, and poignant thoughts here. They're sensitive. Although you were angry with me, the point is, but now your anger has turned away. The, the firestorm of God's wrath has been calmed. The believers no, no longer under the condemnation of the righteous coming judgment of God. That's, that's not for us. And I want to be very clear here. We want to be precise. Isaiah 12.1 does not say that God turned His anger off. The text says He turned His anger away. And turned it instead on Jesus Christ, our divine substitute. And what did God give us instead? At the end of verse 12, comfort. He gave us comfort. This is God granting the ability to repent. He turns away his anger and gives consolation and relief. This is God saying my wrath against you has been satisfied in my son. You are clean. You are pure before me. Your sins will never again count against you. Let me console you. Let me reassure you. That's the work of God in salvation. The, The second theme in this hymn of an individual, the characteristics of the believer because of salvation God is still getting all the credit. Verse 2 makes God's work in salvation as the brackets, kind of the bookends around the qualities of the believer because of salvation. Verse 2 begins, first bookend, God is my salvation. It ends, He has become my salvation. Those are the bookends. But in the middle of verse 2, what does the believer now possess? The believer possess trust. All my confidence is in Him. He is the one who's worked out my salvation. We're called to have that faith now in the millennial kingdom. It'll be perfected, obviously. We also possess the end of all fear that I will not dread. This is the end of the fear of the anger and wrath of God. What a wonderful thing. You want to live a a glorious Christian life now? End all fear now. Don't wait for the millennial kingdom to go, oh, I can't believe I doubted that I was saved. The third thing that the believer possesses, spiritual strength. For Yah, Yah Himself is my strength. What does it mean to say that the Lord is my strength? This is the strength from God to see your salvation through. And What do I mean by that? Well, imagine if Jesus had added just one little word in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, hopefully. <laughs> that kind of makes all the difference. There is no hopefully. Gloriously, in both Greek and English, there is a period. I will raise him up on the last day, period. You get trust, you get the end of all fear, spiritual strength, and you receive a yearning to worship God. A yearning to worship God. Yah, Yahweh Himself is my strength and song. This isn't just that God inspires a song. He is my song. There's a yearning and a longing to sing to Him. This yearning to rejoice in the Lord, to glorify the Lord, this is the most natural characteristic of a true believer. You long, you yearn to worship God. And in fact, this phrase for Yah, Yah Himself is my strength and song and He has become my salvation. This isn't original to Isaiah. As the Holy Spirit inspired this text from the pen of Isaiah, the Holy Spirit gave a divine reminder of Israel's song of salvation after being rescued from the Red Sea. Exodus 15.2, see if this sounds familiar. Yah is my strength and song and He has become my salvation this is a glorious hymn for the individual believer divine anger turning to comfort and the joy of trusting a saving god this is the individual hymn of thankfulness to the lord for salvation this is an emotional reminder for us to speak to the lord in gratitude to tell him oh lord you were so angry with my sin that you turned your anger away and you turned it instead to Christ on my behalf. Now you've comforted me. Now you've consoled me. I trust in you. I'm not afraid of your judgment any longer. You are the strong one. You will complete my salvation. And you have placed in my heart a yearning to give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor that is due to your name. If I could put it this way, this is the hymn you'll sing when all that is obvious sing it now by faith hymn number one in your millennial hymnal the hymn of a thankful individual turning the page in your millennial hymnal we come to hymn number two the hymn of a thankful world in verse three isaiah transitions to a plural pronoun therefore you plural everyone on earth will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation And now this is a song, uh, there's no other way to put it, it's a song of boasting, of boasting in the Lord. Verse 4, And in that day you will say, give thanks to Yahweh, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise Yahweh in song, for He has done majestic things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Now this is an interesting song, because it's a song telling you to sing. There's a corporate thankfulness when the plural verb, give thanks, all of you, give thanks to the Lord. It says, call upon his name. This isn't in the sense of asking God for something. This is the sense of naming his name. It can even mean to shout his name. And this is familiar to us. We, we exalt the name of God. We sing Jesus' name above all names. We sing all hail the power of Jesus' what name This is a corporate gathered expression of singing and shouting our allegiance and loyalty and love for God, calling to His name, naming His name. What else will we sing about? His deeds, His mighty, wondrous acts of salvation. And what do you have to sing about? Our singing of the deeds of the Lord go all the way through all of the consummated redemptive history of God. We can go all the way back to the faithfulness of God to Israel, God's grace to the Gentile, God's grace during the church age that we're in, God's wrath to the believer during the coming tribulation, God's grace to countless people during the tribulation, God defeating Antichrist and all of his followers, the the return of Christ, the executing of every single rebellious, unsaved person, the setting up of the millennial kingdom. Chapter 11, verse 10 says that this is the glorious resting place of Messiah. The building of a new temple described in Ezekiel. You realize that what we're singing praises about right now, we're in the middle of redemptive history. When we get here, we're at the end and we can sing about everything. Our hymnal is going to be a a mile deep, put it that way. To sing a hymn just listing all the works of the Lord could take days. Can you imagine if Pastor Darren is saying, verse 4,207, let's go. How about this for a boast in the Lord? Right now we pray, we desire for the Lord to bring the good news of the gospel and to bring His glory to the ends of the earth. When you think of unsaved friends, relatives, children... And parents, you yearn for the glory of the Lord to be manifest in their lives. When you read the news and you see that wickedness rules this world, you long for the glory of the Lord to be manifest. How is this for a boast? Now when we sing this hymn at the end of verse 4, remember that his name is exalted. Grammatically in Hebrew, this means something that has already happened, not in the process of happening. Think about all the times the Apostle Paul prayed for the spread of the knowledge of Christ in Colossians 4.3. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the Word so that we may speak the mystery of Christ. Or his prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. But the hymn of Isaiah, remember that His name is exalted. Mission accomplished. What a glorious hymn that will be. In fact, verse 5 speaks of the entire world singing of the deeds of the Lord. In fact, verse 5 seems to be involving everyone on earth. Praise Yahweh in song. This is a masculine verb used to indicate everyone in the world in general Gentiles, Jews, everyone. Sing that the Lord has done majestic things, literally meaning that he's performed illustriously. He has been majestic, he has been elevated. But now there's a shift. There's a subtle focus on a people very tender to the Lord's heart and that is His restored Israel. We feel no jealousy toward them. In fact, Paul said in Romans 11 that God gave salvation to us as Gentiles in order to make the Jew jealous. We feel no jealousy. God doesn't love Israel more than the Gentiles saved. What we do feel is awe at the fact that God is so filled overflowing with love So eternally abounding in his capacity to show grace that he can have this poignant homecoming affection for his beloved Israel and have eternal abounding love for us as Gentiles who have been grafted in to enjoy this same love. If you have five children, you don't divide your love and give 20% to each one. You love all of them 100%, right? How do we know that Isaiah is now getting focused in exhorting the Jews to shout and sing for joy. Verse 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy. O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Sing, shout, inhabitant your midst. These are all feminine verbs and nouns in Hebrew. It, this is a shift from the masculine speaking of general, generally everyone over to a feminine idea. This is the woman of Revelation 12. The saved, restored nation of Israel. The context tells us the inhabitant of Zion, specifically meaning someone who lives in Jerusalem and more generally someone who belongs to Jerusalem. You see why Nehemiah 12 and 13 is just a preview. And the best part of all, the glorious fact that God is ruling in person, visibly on His earthly Davidic throne, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So verses 5 and 6 include all the saved. All saved under the banner of the cross. God with His unique love for the Gentile, His unique love for the Jew, and then His corporate love for all that the redeemed in in Ephesians 2 are called one new man. One more thing. This is a literary masterpiece chapter 12 is and it comes there's a, 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 a masterpiece with a highlight and it comes right in the middle right between the two hymns you have the theme of water and salvation in verse 3 Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Exodus 14, God saves Israel through the Red Sea, the waters. Exodus 17, God saves Israel from dying of thirst by giving them water from a rock. 1,500 years later, the Apostle Paul writes something that will come as quite a surprise to the Jew still with the theme of water and salvation in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. It was Christ, the second person of the triune God who gave them the waters of life God's invitation to salvation is pictured as quenching your thirst. In Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ is the thirst quencher. In John 4, 14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And even, guess what, in the new Jerusalem... Forever a reminder of the salvation of God through Christ. Revelation 22.1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I love Nehemiah 12. I love the choirs, thinking of them and marching along the walls that they literally just rebuilt with their own hands. But the grand celebration of Nehemiah 12 is just a preview of something much more glorious because the final piece will be instated at the final celebration the king will be present the king will be there I've said this before and I want to say it again I think it's a little bit weird that we gather together to worship and we we face a, a really nice rock wall and a really cool cross with 200-year-old barnwood from Pennsylvania. I think that's pretty neat. But right there ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ on His throne. That will be the ultimate celebration. You think you sung loud tonight? Just wait. Just wait. No more of this. Well, I don't want to be in imposition in on any. You're going to be standing on your chairs, shouting to Christ. What a glorious day that will be. I hope, and this is something I pray for for all of you frequently, I hope that your thoughts of the future celebration that we have in Christ will give you comfort tomorrow morning because Mondays are hard. Tuesdays are hard. Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays are hard. Sundays are a little less hard, except for me. They're hard for me. but let the thoughts of the future play into your present. Amen? The King is coming. The King is coming. Our Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that Christ is coming. He is coming on the clouds and every eye will behold him. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.